it's Christina. Welcome to another episode of Poem Peeps. Today we're bringing you another episode in our top consult series and one that I think many will find useful. We're excited today to be joined by three experts in the field of interstitial lung disease. Yeah, hi everybody. We're super excited to have a case today, which is a common topic in pulmonary medicine. And it's one that really comes up in both the inpatient and outpatient setting. And so I think it's going to be great to sort of review the approach to the diagnosis of ILD. I can't wait first, and we are extremely excited to be joined by three faculty experts today. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sonia Danoff. Sonia is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins and is co-director of the Johns Hopkins Interstitial Lung Disease and Pulmonary Fibrosis Program. She also serves as the assembly chair of the Clinical Problems Assembly for the American Thoracic Society. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for being here. Next, we have Shweta Sood, who is an assistant professor of medicine at Penn Medicine, whose expertise is in interstitial lung disease and is an integral part of the fellowship training there, where she leads the monthly ILD conference for fellows and provides didactics for all ILD cases. It is great to have you today on the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. And finally, we have John Kim, who is an assistant professor of medicine at UVA and has both clinical and research expertise in ILD with a focus on pulmonary fibrosis and who personally taught me everything I know about pulmonary fibrosis during my fellowship. Uh, and this is great. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And just as a disclaimer for everybody, I know you know this by listening right now, but just as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for specific medical advice, and the views we all express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. The case today is HIPAA compliant, and we've changed some details to protect the privacy of our patient. Team, we have a new consult coming in. So we have a 66-year-old man, never smoker, with a past medical history of hypertension and osteoarthritis, who was admitted overnight for progressive dyspnea on exertion and now dyspnea at rest. Since admission, he has remained afebrile, normotensive. He's breathing about 18 to 20 times a minute, and he's currently saturating 94% on three liters nasal cannula. He is not on any oxygen at baseline, but was noted to be 87% on room air in the ED when he was walking, um, requiring three liters to maintain SATs greater than 92%. Our ED colleagues, as part of their workup, obtained a chest X-ray, which per our read, and we'll put this on our account for you to see, shows some hypoinflation as well as some bilateral interstitial markings. In addition, a CT chest with IV contrast was done, which showed no evidence of PE, but did show some bilateral basilar interstitial changes with some honeycombing and traction bronchiectasis, but without significant ground glass consolidations or pleural effusions. Given his CT chest findings and new oxygen requirements, he was admitted for further evaluation. And today we're consulted for our evaluation and recommendations for possible ILD workup for this patient. Thanks, Christina. Yeah, I remember getting these consults as a first year pulmonary fellow and now even on the pulmonary consults services, the attending, and there's just such a broad range of ILD etiologies that I feel like it can be a pretty overwhelming consult initially to, to get started with. So our hope today is that we can walk through this case with our experts. And by the end, everyone who listens can feel comfortable with the initial approach uh, and building a framework for ILD evaluation. So John, Monty mentioned that we have a 66-year-old man with minimal past medical histories that we know of yet uh, and findings concerning for an underlying ILD process as called on his imaging. 
So can you walk us through your approach to a history? You're about to go talk to this patient. You're sort of building up what you're going to say. I feel like there's a really specific and in-depth uh, history for these patients with a possible ILD, and I'd love to know what you want to ask them. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a loaded question. <laughs> there's so much to unpack here on even the initial approach. And so the overall question I ask myself is whether this is an acute or chronic process that's going on uh, with this patient. And so uh, I want to know when the symptoms first occurred, and these are commonly dyspnea, fatigue, and cough. Um, so I want to know the onset of these symptoms. And then I want to know if it's whether only with exertion or if it's now progressed to rest, which it seems like maybe in this case. And sometimes it's actually more chronic than how it's initially presented. And so some questions I sometimes ask is, um, you know, did you notice fatigue initially and how long ago? And you'll be surprised that patients say, actually, I haven't felt right for about 10 years. You know, maybe it's a one-year history um, that's being presented. Another kind of unique question is, um, have you had a lingering cough? And I can't tell you how many times patients have said that their PCP or somebody has prescribed antibiotics for a cough that never went away. It's been ongoing for three years. So these are the little clues that tell you how chronic this has actually been going on. Uh, another question I ask is, you know, do you have any prior chest imaging? prior chest x-ray or CT scan done for whatever reason, um, and did they note anything? And so these are kind of the questions I ask to get an idea, of, again, if it's an acute or chronic process, because we know that in patients with interstitial lung disease, they can have a variable course, whether it's a more rapid decline or a slow decline, and kind of where they are. So I kind of want to know where they are on that slope, and these are sort of the pointed questions I ask initially um, about their history. Um, and kind of related to that, you get to like the review of systems. And so these are questions that may be directed more towards like comorbidities that are, we know are closely linked to interstitial lung disease. And so one comorbidity is connective tissue disease, such as rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, myositis. And so I may ask questions whether they noticed any rash, have they had muscle aches, um, do they experience a lot of dry eyes, dry mouth, sort of again, kind of pointing at what may be the underlying cause. Related to that, uh, we know there's a strong genetic component, specifically telomere biology disorder. So I may ask things like, did they go gray a little bit sooner than their colleagues, right? So a uh, silver fox kind of presentation, do they have a history of bruising or anemia? That may suggest some sort of hematological abnormality, again, that's linked to telomere biology disorders. And then we know that there are other comorbidities that are linked to interstitial lung disease that might be a clue, such as acid reflux, do they have heartburn? Do they have sleep disorder breathing? Do they have unwitnessed um, witnessed apneas or uh, snoring? And then I also ask medications that they're taking. We know that there are some medications that can trigger menstrual lung disease, such as amiodarone, nitroferantoin, bleomycin. So again, it's a pretty exhaustive approach um, that's sort of important because again, it can maybe narrow your diagnosis and see again how acute or chronic this process is. Um, another really strong component is family history. So we know that interstitial lung disease has a very strong familial and genetic component. And so I often ask patients, do you have a family member who has a history of interstitial lung disease? They may not know what this disease is. And so um, oftentimes I ask, well, do you have a family member who passed away from a respiratory illness that they weren't sure of? Were they using oxygen, but they weren't sure why they were using oxygen? Again, these are sort of the clues that may pinpoint a genetic component to the interstitial lung disease, and it's a family history. Um, and again, I also ask if there's any family history of, again, other comorbidities, such as connective tissue disease, such as Sjogren's, rheumatoid arthritis, myositis. And then 
again, a, another component is a, the social history, right, and kind of the exposure history. And so uh, we do know that smoking seems to be strongly linked to an increased risk of interstitial lung disease, so that's always important to ask. And then you start to ask the weird questions, right? you got to ask the questions that causes patients to raise their eyebrows and kind of look at you funny. <laughs> so these are questions related to specific exposures. And so we do think that bird exposure, specifically, specifically feathers, can increase the risk of certain types of ILD. So you may ask, do they have a pet bird? Do they have a bird feeder that they attend to? Do they use um, pillows and sheets uh, with feathers in them? Right? These are important questions to ask. We think there's a, a strong component of mold that's linked to interstitial lung disease. So you may ask, do you have mold in your house? Have you had flooding? Have you had water damage? Have you noticed black or brown spots in your house? Uh, do you have a summer home? Right? Do you live somewhere else that might have some of this damage? And these are sort of these exhaustive questions you ask to try to help narrow your diagnosis. And then occupational history, right, especially exposures to organic and inorganic compounds. So you ask, again, kind of these random questions, but you you'll be surprised at how often you hit on it. Have they worked in a shipyard? Uh, do they do landscaping that might expose them to mold? And it's regionally dependent, too. For example, in Virginia, we have a lot of people who have worked in the coal mines, and we know that's a risk factor. So, again, I think I talked a lot, but this reflects just how much uh, you ask during a history and how important it is an exhaustive history on the initial evaluation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, like you said, it's exhaustive. Talking a lot is appropriate. This is not the consult you're going to do at 5.45 p.m. on Friday and finish by 6, right? You need to spend some real time with it. And I really love the point you said about the progression and trying to nail down when symptoms developed. I feel like one trick I really like to do is to try to find specific events that people remember. You know, so they may not remember last year, but they remember Halloween two years ago, they walked the whole block with their kids and they had no problem. And then this year they couldn't do that. So, uh, and I wanna, before we go on, I just wanna broaden to Sonia and Sweta uh, because I feel like I have this list of questions that's just been growing in my template. Do you have any of those weird questions that you've, you hit on that you think it's really important to ask people? Yeah, I, I totally agree with John, I find that patients often don't underestimate the length of time that they have actually had symptoms. So I sometimes ask the question, when do you think you were last completely well from a breathing standpoint? Because that really makes people go back and say, okay, what was it that I expected that I should be able to do that I can no longer do? And the other thing that I would say regarding um, bird antigen exposure is that one of the things that I've learned in the last several years is that people who are hunters sometimes keep trophy ducks or trophy birds in their house. And so um, it's, it's important to make clear when you ask questions about birds that you're not only talking about living birds, you're talking about any kind of bird. But I agree, it's just, it's an incredibly long discussion, but it, you often come up with the answer as to what caused the disease. So, so worth putting in the effort. Uh, just to piggyback on that a little bit, I'll also say when you're seeing these consults to echo your point about the 545 call, the first 45 minutes in the room with the patient is you just going through your review of systems, uh, exposure history. So yeah, this is not a fast and quick clinic visit, consult visit on the inpatient side or call to the family uh, if the patient's admitted to the ICU with decompensated ILD. So time is the most valuable thing when it comes to history. Oh, that's great. We'll make sure to post the links in the show notes for this so people can use them if they want to. 
Uh, all right, so let me give you some more history about this patient. So uh, I can tell you the patient states that he first noticed dyspnea exertion about four months ago. This is when he first says that it starts. He found it more difficult with climbing stairs in his home, but he attributed it to being less active and he had gained five pounds during the last few months. You know, I think common story with the COVID pandemic. Uh, he would routinely walk one to two miles three times a week, uh, but that has been a while ago. So, you know, sort of delving into his history more, that's like really more like a year, year and a half ago. And now that's been shortening. Now he's down to half a mile three times a week. And then he start, has to stop because he feels winded. He also describes having an intermittent dry cough and not associated with eating, food intake, occurs throughout the day, not worse at night. Uh, he denies any recent fevers, chills, weight loss, muscle weakness, rashes, or joint pains, aside from some chronic right knee pain that he's had uh, after an old injury. He has no family history of pulmonary disease that he knows of. He has one older sister in his 70s who has hypertension, and his parents have relatively uh, minimal health issues in their 90s, uh, just some hypertension, hyperlipidemia. He has no personal history of smoking or illicit drug use. He drinks alcohol one to two times per week, and it sounds like it's in moderation when he does drink. He and his wife live in the suburbs uh, in a house that they own. They have carpeted floors and central heating uh, and central air conditioning. He also has a five-year-old dog, uh, but no hunting, not a hunting dog, and he does not have any birds. He denies any occupational exposure that he uh, knows of. He does say that he was a police detective. And so, you know, he was out and about in the city quite a bit, um, but nothing sort of sustained um, that he knows that he can attribute it to. And he retired last year at the age of 65. Thanks so much for that's a great history. And I want to go back to Sonia's point, too, because I feel like everything I learned about ILD has come from Sonia. But I really like that. Um, that question of, you know, when were you last, when did you last feel normal, um, or even relating it to a specific event of the year, as you said, Halloween, you know, sometimes I know people can think of, you know, they do seasons. So like summer was great, but fall was bad. So maybe another, another tip to help people when they're um, eliciting a history. And I think that the case that you and John have talked about, you know, we know that the history is so important, but you know, definitely so is a physical exam. And I know, John, you thought you had a loaded question, um, but Sweep, I'm going to you next. And this may be another loaded question as well, but what are some important positive or negative clinical signs on physical exam that you think are important to evaluate um, upon initial evaluation of a patient with suspected ILD? Well, that's a super straightforward question. I'm, I'm totally kidding, but uh, this is hard. And there's so many, it's hard to kind of and narrow in on one thing. So what I've always sorted it in my mind, and this goes back to my days in residency, uh, is number one, stick with what you know. Uh, every great intern, resident, fellow attending still does this. They walk into the room and the first thing they do is look at the patient and look at the vital sign. If your new ILD case is in the midst of an active decompensation, you're probably not going to pause to ask them if they have birds right then and there. You're going to secure an ICU bed. And oftentimes, especially I've noticed with house staff, they really are so phenomenal here at Penn, but as I'm sure they are everywhere. They want to diagnose the case, but where their value really comes is in being the first person at the bedside to say, let's get this patient to a stable environment first and analyze them after we stabilize them. Now, beyond that, that really is a loaded question as well. I think you start with your pulmonary exam. Um, you can listen for things like crackles that might tip you off. 
uh, if the patient has an ILD. Some ILDs have been associated with this inspiratory squeak phenomenon. I think that uh, those are more HP related, but that's not always present. Um, so the other thing that you can look is for signs of clubbing or signs of hypoxia. Again, trying to figure out whether this is an acute process or more of a chronic process. Beyond your pulmonary exam, I think one of the other things that is really important to remember is not everything that's dyspnea and cough is ILD. I mean, it is sometimes an ILD clinic, don't get me wrong, but you want to eliminate comorbidities, uh, especially cardiac comorbidities, um, infections for patients that have malignancy risk factors, uh, looking for that as well. So looking for signs of volume overload, fever, night sweats, waist loss, indolent infections that could be there. I will say the majority of the time, the hardest things to find on physical exam actually are the fourth group, and that is connective tissue disease findings. We know that the, there's a huge subset of ILD patients that have ILD secondary to connective tissue disease. And remembering the major ones can often be the thing that can help you elucidate a cause for their ILD on your physical exam. So in general, we should be doing a head-to-toe exam on these patients. I'm certainly guilty of sometimes not doing that, especially in an acute setting. But if you can't do a full head-to-toe exam, if it's a kind of a quickly decompensating situation, look at their hands and look at their face. Um, more specifically, look at the skin around their forehead. Is it really tight? Do they have a small oropharynx? These are tip-offs of possibly having scleroderma. Look at their hands. Do they have any signs of uh, PCP or P, uh, MCP or PIP, a joint swelling or tenderness? Maybe this is a rheumatoid patient. Do they have subcutaneous nodules, which you can also see sometimes in rheumatoid patients? Do they have telangiectasias that you're noticing going back to scleroderma? Um, dermatomyositis is just a, a rich exam to kind of identify. Do they have heliotrope sign or uh, Gottschen's papules across the hand, shawl sign or a V sign? And then similarly, looking for mechanics hands and looking at the skin around the nail bed can often be really, really valuable here. And so if you don't get a chance to do anything uh, significant, just look at, look at the skin and joints on the hands. Um, and I think, if anything, you might be able to pick up something that could point to connective tissue disease. But those are some of the highlights I can think of with uh, physical exam findings. So maybe not a simple question in the end. So I will, I will throw in that when I was an intern, my resident, Sean Gain, who is a master clinician in Ireland now, uh, taught us that you should always start with the hands. And it's an interesting strategy because when you take somebody's hands in yours, not only does it make you focus on them, but also makes an instant connection with the patient. There's something very intimate about holding someone's hands and looking carefully at their hands. And so I, and, uh, you know, with all the comments that you made, I think you're right, Shweta, you have to deal with how the patient looks. If they look terrible, you need to deal with what has to be dealt with. But I think that if you're in a calm situation where you can take the time to really start off looking carefully at their hands, it actually creates a bond that is very valuable. And then the only other thing I would just add is that 
particularly when you're examining patients in with background noise when you're doing the chest exam, I actually find that it's very helpful if you percuss from top to bottom so that you can figure out where the bottom of the lung field is. And then you listen with your stethoscope from bottom to top because you then get the transition between the dullness below the diaphragm and crackles, which are high pitched and sometimes can be hard to hear, especially in the hospital where there's a lot of ambient noise. So if you get in the habit of percussing, it gives you a sense of how big the lung field is. And then it also tells you where you should put your stethoscope for your first breath as you're listening to them take their first couple of breaths to listen for um, adventitial sounds. Thanks so much, Sonia and Sweetha. That was wonderful. And I think definitely a lot of people will probably be doing their next physical exam by looking at the hands first. I will come back to our patient. And on his physical exam, there's some things that I want to point out. And upon initial inspection, you know, as Sweetha mentioned, um, he did look appropriately for his current level of care, which was a monitored floor bed. He did not appear to be in any acute distress. He was able to speak full sentences, but on three liters nasal cannula, keep his sat above 92% during our interview. On lung exam, he does have some fine crackles to the bases, but no wheezing or ronchi. We couldn't really appreciate any use of accessory muscles and did not appreciate any clubbing. From a cardiac perspective, he appeared to be in a normal sinus rhythm with no significant murmurs or rub, and we could not appreciate an RV heave. Um, on him, and perhaps a slightly laterally displaced PMI. But to um, bring up your question, he had no significant peripheral edema, and otherwise he had normal and symmetric pedal pulses. No signs of rash or hyper or hypopigmentation. And from a neurological standpoint, no focal deficits. And we did look at the joints pretty extensively. He had no obvious joint abnormalities and would say overall he had five out of five strength in both his bilateral upper and bilateral lower extremities. So Sweetha, based on these physical exam findings, is there anything you're less concerned about or more concerned about after hearing this? Yeah, I think um, first it's reassuring that at least the patient is stable, although the new oxygen requirement is something that will need to be worked up as we are. I think that the possibility of comorbidities, more specifically cardiac or pH, kind of moves a little bit lower down the list. And then as far as connective tissue disease, I'm not hearing any obvious signs. And uh, the addition of the neuro exam showing no proximal muscle weakness as well is something often valuable in polymyositis uh, to examine for. I wouldn't say that we can completely eliminate connective tissue disease quite yet. I think we can move it down the list. And the only reason I say that is sometimes in select diseases, ILD is the first and maybe the only manifestation before any of the other connective tissue disease symptoms occur. But I do think that this allows us to move connective tissue disease lower on the list compared to some of the other ILDs. That's great. Um, and, and I think, so for this patient, we have a great history and physical exam so far, and we are a little lucky, and this happens often, that we have a CAT scan already. But Sonia, I think a lot of times these consults come in either without an up-to-date CAT scan or before we have imaging, and we're in the position of sort of recommending testing to the medical team. And I, a lot of places, I feel like everyone just writes ILD protocol into their CT scan box. But what is that protocol? So I wanted to ask you, what images do you like? Or what kind of protocol do you think is helpful? I've seen inspiratory, expiratory. I've seen prone and supine. Uh, and then sort of a, a second building question, when you're looking at the CAT scan with the ILD protocol, do you have an approach to it? You know, I think some people 
are looking at the long windows right away. Sometimes people are starting with the esophagus, but what's your sort of expert approach uh, to getting the images and then evaluating them? Yeah, sure. I think that's a really important question. And I think that we're really fortunate to have a lot of guidance on this, both with the recent um, ATS guidelines, as well as the Fleischner Society guidelines uh, for imaging in interstitial lung disease. And so, you know, I think that if you have a patient who presents to your clinic with mild disease, where really what you're trying to do is do an optimal study to evaluate for interstitial lung disease, then I would do a non-contrast high-resolution CT scan with inspiratory and expiratory imaging. And it is very helpful, at least on an initial image, to get at least one, um, you know, one prone image so that you can know that whether when a patient, if a patient has very limited um, reticulations or changes and they're in the dependent portion of the lung, if it is just because of atelectasis, if it's somebody who has a large body mass, when you flip them prone, that'll go away. And so typically that's something that you're looking at for somebody who has very early disease. The inspiratory and expiratory images are very helpful because they show air trapping, which is one of the characteristic findings in hypersensitivity pneumonitis. So seeing that in an appropriate context can actually be practically diagnostic of hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And then the um, use of high-resolution CT imaging is really just a reconstruction technique that allows you to look at very thin sections, typically like one to two millimeters thick, gives you a much cleaner uh, view of, of the architecture of the lung. It allows you to distinguish between ground glass and reticulation and honeycombing, things of that sort. And I'll make the point that if it's primarily targeted for looking at interstitial lung disease, we do a non-contrast CT because contrast is very important if you're trying to rule out something like a, a pulmonary embolus. And so patient coming through the emergency room with, um, you know, with severe shortness of breath where, where pulmonary embolus is clearly on your differential, you want to have contrast because you want to use one study to do, you know, to answer two questions. But if you can avoid contrast in a patient where you're really characterizing ILD, it allows you to get a much better contrast in the lung. It, it, the, the contrast actually makes lung look very bright and it can be really hard to appreciate ground glass changes. And then, you know, in terms of looking at imaging, you know, what I usually say when I go through this with our residents is that my strategy is to do the same thing every single time. I start at the top. You know, you almost always have the images oriented the same way. So it's a, you have the supine image and the cross-sectional images. And so I go top to bottom. The first thing my brain is doing is it's saying, is the distribution uniform? Is it more at the top? Is it more at the bottom? And then is it largely peripheral, that is in the subpleural areas, or does it extend into the middle of the chest, into mediastinum? And that's all I'm looking at the first time I go through it. I run through it very quickly, top to bottom. And then I'll go back and I'll go back section by section and look for now more architectural details. Do I see reticulation? Do I see traction bronchiectasis? Do I see honeycombing? Um, those are things that the traction bronchiectasis and honeycombing would sort of push me more into the, is this kind of a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern? Am I seeing a lot of ground glass? Am I seeing a lot of cysts or nodules? That would push me into a not UIP kind of pattern. 
but overall distribution of the abnormalities and then, you know, what are the details of the abnormalities that you're seeing? That's sort of the strategy I use for looking through it. And I imagine that John and Shweta may have their own, you know, sort of the way they think about it, but that's, that's how I think about it. Yeah, I think that is like an excellent sort of uh, overall framework. And we're going to talk more about the the groupings we have, but you're basically looking at distribution, you're looking at patterns, and then you're using that to try to lump them into these sort of broader categories that help you get the diagnosis. I love that approach. John, I wanted to ask you next, you know, based on his imaging in the ED, there appears to be some evidence of hypoinflation. So he had seven posterior ribs, at least on his chest x-ray that was done. And on CT, um, he had the bibasilar reticulations. Um, and as Sonia just mentioned, some, some terms that are coming out, um, honeycombing as well as traction bronchiectasis. I wanted to ask you, though, what do these findings mean to you? And, you know, um, if, is there a way for, for some of our listeners today who may not be familiar with honeycombing or what traction bronchiectasis is, is there a way that you can easily try to describe that for us? Sure. Um... So when I see honeycombing and or traction bronchiectasis on a CT scan, it quickly raises red flags. Again, it kind of goes back to what I initially said, is this an acute or chronic process? And then how fast do you think they may be progressing? And so uh, we know that these two patterns on CT are cardinal features of fibrosis. And based on prior studies, we believe that they're actually core prognostic signs for patients with interstitial lung disease. And so broadly, and this is probably covered on a previous podcast of you guys, bronchiectasis, right? It's the abnormal, abnormal uh, dilatation of the airways that really don't taper distally as expected. And so when we think that bronchiectasis is caused, let's say, by an infectious process or a primary disease process, such as cystic fibrosis or whatnot, um, they tend to have a much more sort of smooth appearance of the airway. Whereas with traction bronchiectasis, you know, for me, it seems at least more bumpy, a little bit more rocky. And it's really because it's distorted, resulting from all the fibrosing lung parenchyma that's sort of tethering that airway and keeping it kind of open distally. Um, so that's kind of how I look at traction bronchiectasis, and that's kind of what I teach on rounds with residents. In regards to honeycombing, similar to traction bronchiectasis, it reflects, again, a lot of fibrosis of the lung tissue of the parenchyma. And when you see honeycombing, what it reflects is substantial architectural distortion of the parenchyma. And it leads to these clustered cystic spaces. And what these spaces are is basically um, dilatation, abnormal dilatation of the alveolar spaces, again, from all this destruction that's occurring from all this fibrosis. And it's really distinguished with a thickened lining. And that thickened lining is actually thick fibrous walls around sort of that distorted alveoli. And so that's kind of how I would describe it, um, me personally. And it's, again, two really big red flags that there's a lot of fibrosis that's ongoing. And this patient is likely on a pretty rapid slope of declining. Um, in this case. I'll also comment that the reason why we kind of harp on honeycombing and traction bronchiectasis, and I think uh, Dr. Danoff alluded to, these are two important components of usual interstitial pneumonia pattern uh, that's been, again, sort of defined by APS and Fleischner Society. Um, and so if you have honeycombing 
on the CT scan, again, raises your concern that they have a usual interstitial pneumonia pattern that's going on. And again, we harp on this because we believe the UIP pattern, again, has a lot of implications for prognosis. And so in addition to that, besides these two signs, I think we alluded to, you also want to look at the distribution of all these abnormal characteristics. And so is it a subpleural nature? Is it mostly basal or predominant? And again, if that's the case, it may help narrow us to a UIP pattern with this honeycomb and interacting bronchiectasis and may get us closer to the specific diagnosis for this patient. Thanks, John. I think that you know, you're touching on a point that I think was really important to say out loud is that the reason we spend so much time harping on this and really trying to uh, delve down into what the underlying pathology is, is both for treatment implications, but also prognostic implications. You know, we know these broad categories, if we can define people well, really help us in knowing what their disease course is going to be and what our next steps are going to be. So I think we now have a history, physical, we have some imaging. We're about to delve into sort of our differentials and our next diagnostic workup. But Shweta, we found really helpful for learners to sort of give us a one-liner or a frame at this point in the case. So can you just tell us how you're thinking about this person and if you have sort of a one-liner or problem representation for them? Yeah, so I think you have a 66-year-old guy who's been quite healthy up until recently and who's developed more progressive uh, dyspnea which he thinks is over the last four months. Um, we know that he has new oxygen requirement, but really no other exam findings beyond possibly having crackles. Um, and so far we have a CT scan that's implying that he has some interstitial changes, including traction, reticulations, and possibly honeycomb. Thanks so much, Sweta. And as a follow-up question, based on what you've heard so far, and you know, when you're approaching patients for the first time, I know things can be overwhelming as far as you know coming up with a differential uh, within ILD. But do you have a general framework after you obtain a thorough history and exam with imaging findings to help you kind of differentiate where to go next and what ne what are the next steps to take? Yeah, I think the way that I still silo it in my mind is I go back to my history and exam first, because I truly think that's the most important part of any ILD initial visit um, or initial evaluation. And I try to silo ILDs based on do I have an exposure or trigger or underlying cause for the ILD or can I not find anything at all? And this helps me remember that if my history or exam are pointing towards something like an exposure, birds, um, or a familial component, or an occupational ILD component, um, or a connective tissue disease symptom or sign that I picked up on a history or exam, that is going to move to the top of my differential while the others kind of follow it. If I can't find a clear ideology, then I start looking at all those idiopathics, you know, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, idiopathic NSIP, maybe HP without a cause. Um, and then the third thing that I do to try to integrate that uh, is look back at my CT scan. And honestly, I still simplify it in my mind. Is it UIP or is it not? Because if it's not UIP, uh, and there's a whole set of differentials there that I can entertain. If it's UIP, my list all of a sudden shortens to IPF, select connective tissue diseases if history and exam supports it, select occupational diseases if history and exam supports it. 
and maybe HP if history exam supports it in uh, certain situations, um, and as long as other radiographic findings support it too. So those are uh, the broad categories, cause or no cause, um, and UIP or not UIP. There's nothing we like more than simple. I think that's the way <laughs> having that to start with, I think is wonderful. You're my kind of people then. <laughs> <laughs> So Sonia, going to you next, you know, first of all, any, any additional frameworks that you have would be really helpful. And I think with the frameworks is helping us for our next tests. So, you know, I know there's a big list of laboratory tests that we often send in this ILD workup and, and then we also get PFTs on all these patients. And so my question is, are there a certain set of labs you think everybody deserves to have? And then a second layer, uh, how do you sort of make that decision and, and what are the important tests that we should send on these patients? And then in our PFTs, you know, to, to lump multiple questions, you know, are we just looking for restriction uh, for prognosis or are there other features that can actually help us in the diagnostic process? Yeah, no, those are those are great questions. And, you know, I think I think I would just start off going back to exactly what Shweta was was saying is ILD is a symptom. It's actually not a diagnosis. So, you know, I, you, you, it's like having a cough. Like, are you coughing because you have pneumonia or you have asthma or you have aspiration? And ILD is the same thing, is that we, we tend to think about, oh, yeah, your patient has ILD. Well, that's just the start. And so really, you know, I, I love Shweta's approach to, like, how do you divide this out? And and really, the when you think about getting labs, you're doing the same thing. And what I found, and, and I think what we agreed when the ATS statements on diagnosis of IPF, the guidelines for diagnosis of IPF came out, is that the first time a patient is seen and evaluated for ILD is the best chance of finding what the diagnosis is. So what we recommended was that there be a fairly broad approach to looking at, you know, at, at serologies for potential autoimmune causes. And, you know, again, one of the other things that's sort of implied in a lot of what we've talked about, but I'll just say, state it explicitly, is the demographics of the patient also makes a big difference. So there tends to be a sense that IPF really affects, I mean, it does, it affects predominantly men, so about four to one, male to female. It affects predominantly people over 65. So when I see patients that are female, that are black, that are younger, my concern about um, autoimmunity becomes much higher. And so for that patient, I might say, I'm going to really thoroughly look at their exam, and then I'm just going to send off everything all at once because my pretest probability is extremely high. When I see a patient who's older, there's a minimal set of testing that I think I would send, and that would include things like a SED rate, a CRP, an anti-nuclear antibody, a rheumatoid factor, and a CCP. I tend to see, because of the dem demographics in our area, a lot of patients with connective tissue disease. So I perhaps send a more extensive panel, but I also send things like a, a row antibody, which can identify Sjogren's, but also is a secondary antibody, and it's a myositis-associated antibody. We send CK and aldolase because we're looking for subclinical myositis, and I will often send um, a full myositis panel at the initial evaluation. And again, why is this? It's, it's that that first time is the time where your brain is the most open to what the diagnosis could be. And the further you go along, the more you latch on to a diagnosis and you tend to 
frame all of the things that happen related to that diagnosis. So it's really important to keep that open mind at the initial part of it. And I, you know, I haven't mentioned, but you know, I would I would send SCL70, I would send RNP, which is for a mixed connective tissue disorder. And so, you know, why do why do all of these things? Well, I'm looking for the um, autoimmune diapathies that are most associated with with interstitial lung disease. And then, you know, the question that sometimes comes up is about whether to send hypersensitivity panels. And again, I think a lot of this depends on what you have available. The other thing is that not all labs are equivalent. So some of the labs that, you know, myositis panel is a good example, hypersensitivity panel is another good example. It depends on where you can send your labs as to what the quality of the testing is. And particularly with some of the more subtle tests, it can be make a difference whether you go to sort of a general lab or whether you go to a very highly specific lab where they can do things like immunoprecipitation, which they aren't going to do at some of the more general referral labs. That's great. That's excellent. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to know uh, when you're getting your results back, you know, where was it sent and and how thorough is this? And if your suspicion is really high, is there somewhere else that you can sort of send it? And then just to dive into the, the second part of the question I had, I shouldn't have lumped two together for PFTs. So I know when we have PFTs, you know, we're often looking at the restrictive pattern, you know, what, what's their overall level of restriction in their DLCO, um, somewhere that predictors of uh, their prognosis and their disease severity. Are there other things that you look for that can also help on the diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when you're looking at patients, uh, you know, much like uh, Shweta was saying is like, you know, this is part of your first impression of the patient. And so if their lung volume, so their FBC and their total lung capacity are normal, then I'm a little less anxious about the situation than if I see somebody who presents with an FBC or to lung capacity that's say 50 or 60% predicted, which is not unusual. And then the other piece of this that's very important, obviously you wanna look if there's an obstructive component that goes along with the restrictive component. And the, the last thing that I think is incredibly important just to remind people is a diffusing capacity is really critical in this situation because often even patients who have relatively well-preserved lung volumes will have extremely compromised diffusing capacities. And that really speaks to the oxygen requirement. If you have a very low diffusing capacity, you're almost certainly gonna require oxygen with activity. And, and that also to me is a, you know, a red flag for, you know, this is a patient who might also have pulmonary vascular disease. Maybe this is somebody who has pulmonary hypertension as well or it's somebody who smoked before they got interstitial lung disease. And so they have a combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema kind of phenotype where both the, you know, emphysema has made their lungs large, fibrosis has made it smaller, but both have affected and in a negative way their diffusing capacity. So I think that those are really critical issues. And it's also very important in terms of tracking patients where we're talking about progression, because many patients aren't active enough to recognize changes until they're fairly significant, whereas pulmonary function testing can pick up much more subtle changes in their lung function. And so if you have a patient where you're not sure, is this getting better, getting worse, or staying the same, those PFTs are really going to be critical, you know, longitudinally to try to, to understand that. Thank you for that, Sonia. Follow-up question for that too, regarding the diffusing capacity. You know, so our patient um, who's requiring oxygen now will assume that he has a pretty severe defect, but is there a certain percentage or percent predicted where you anticipate someone may require oxygen either at rest or with ambulation? Yeah, I, we generally talk about the fact that below 50% people start to need oxygen with ambulation. And there's a wide range. It's, it often surprises me because I definitely have some patients who 
at DLCOs in the 60% range, but still with, with you know, vigorous activity require oxygen, they'll desaturate with vigorous activity. And I have other patients who have, you know, volume, who have DLCOs that are a little bit under 50%, who at least at the level of activity that they can achieve are not requiring oxygen, but like right at around 50% is where I'm, you know, am, I'm ambulating patients or doing six minute walk tests to see what their oxygen requirement is. Perfect. And you're, you kind of are leading into the next question that we had regarding the six-minute walk test. Um, so I know that some people may not be familiar with that. Um, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what that test entails. And I know there's some literature that correlate um, six-minute walk test with quality of life as well as lung function. But how often do you perform a six-minute walk test on your patients um, with ILD? Yeah, so very kind of briefly, the six-minute walk test is a simple test compared to some of the things that we do in ILD clinic, but it provides invaluable information for the patient as well as for you. And basically, what you want to tell the patient if they've never had a six-minute walk test is you're going to be walking ideally down a corridor as fast as possible, far as possible, without jogging or running. There's, that's the big caveat. Um, you want to tell them to wear uh, clothing that they would be comfortable going out and doing a walk like that, and including comfortable shoes uh, as well, too. I think the utility of the six-minute walk test is twofold. One, at each point, at each minute, so in the six minutes the patient is walking, at each minute we document their oxygen saturations and their heart rate. And what we're trying to see is how low does their oxygen saturation go during the entire walk test here. So is it at minute three that they dip down to 88% on room air or is it more close to minute six? The other thing that we're actually trying to do is quantify how much oxygen they need at certain centers, including ours. If you have a desaturation on room air, we repeat, we stop the walk test and we repeat it on a certain amount of oxygen to try to figure out what your oxygen level is. So the walk test can be done on room air or it can be done on oxygen. As far as how often you get it, I would say uh, I get it for almost every single new ILD evaluation. I would say I would get it uh, initially in the first year as I'm trying to learn the patient's trajectory, are they a fast progressor, a slow progressor, are their oxygen needs stable? I probably do check it at least once every three to four months when I see the patient in clinic, if not more. If they're stable and you have a couple walk tests that show they don't need room air and clinically all other signs suggest that they're stable, you can probably do it once or twice a year at most unless things change. To be perfectly blunt about it, the pulmonary function test and the walk test are almost kind of like a vital sign for me. So more often than not, if they're seeing me in person and not for a telemed visit, I usually do obtain them with each visit. Thank you. That's a great way to look at it. Another, maybe the seventh vital sign is the, the PFTs and the walk test. <laughs> Great. So our patient had some further testing. Uh, he had PFTs that had no evidence of obstruction, but he did have moderate restriction with a TLC of 60% predicted and a severe gas transfer defect, a DLCO of 49% predicted. He also had a laboratory workup sent off. He had ESR, CRP, which were normal RF and CCP, which were negative for signs of 
uh, rheumatoid arthritis. He had an ANA that came back at one to 40 in a speckled pattern. And, and I feel like this is actually a common thing that happens. We send this broad work up and then we get a couple lab tests back. So John, I wanted just your thoughts on the case so far, you know, what's your sort of leading diagnosis for this person based on remember doing half. And then how do you take an ANA like this and incorporate that into that diagnosis and that thinking? Sure. Um, maybe Dr. Dan probably has more insight into this. <laughs> I feel like he's the expert. I feel like I just look at all her review articles on how to manage these types of patients with connective tissue diseases. Personally, I probably wouldn't too, put too much value in the ANA lab, especially kind of a low positivity pattern one to four. Um, what it may do is kind of go back to the patient and dig further whether there might be any component of connective tissue disease or an autoimmune component. So I may ask the patient again the questions and maybe ask it more directed. Maybe I would do a more focused physical exam. Again, uh, the things that uh, Dr. Sue mentioned, looking at the joints, you know, looking for a rash. Um, and if I'm not that confident in my own exam, this is where maybe I reach out to my rheumatology colleagues and ask them to evaluate for any suspicion of connective tissue disease. So yeah, I wouldn't put too much stock. And there's some prior research that shows that ANA positivity, especially these lower titers, they're not very specific for IPF. And so there's a nice study, I think, out of UCSF when Joyce, Dr. Joyce Lee was there, which showed that the ANA titers were not significantly different uh, between IPF patients and matched healthy controls. So that's kind of my gestalt on the ANA. A commonly ordered lab that I actually maybe put more stock in is actually the CBC with differential. So one, again, kind of going back to telomere biology disorder, which we think is maybe a contributing cause to pulmonary fibrosis, is there any component of anemia or cytopenia, even if it's like a little bit subtle, that might suggest some underlying telomere disorder? Um, and then kind of more recently is actually the absolute monocyte count. Again, commonly ordered with a CBC with differential, and there's really good research that shows that an elevated absolute monocyte count from the blood at least is associated with um, a more rapid disease progression as well as worse survival in patients with pulmonary fibrosis. And so far, the research has shown is specific to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So if I would see an elevated monocyte count, it might again raise my suspicion that one, maybe there is a pulmonary fibrosis specifically IPF component to this. And also, again, it may suggest this patient is kind of on that ramp of decline. And so those are kind of the labs I sort of put stock into. And kind of putting it together, in this case, again, with all the factors, I am still kind of leaning towards IPF. Again, male, 60s, and particularly the radiological pattern. And for the most part, the labs that seem mostly negative except for this low positivity AMA. The one thing I also will mention, which I don't think we kind of talked about, was um, the patient's self-reported race ethnicity. And this might be a little bit controversial, but we've commonly been taught that um, non-Hispanic white men of, North, of European ancestry tends to be kind of the group that might be at risk for IPF, and that's probably because that's where a lot of the research has been done. And then a lot of the genetic studies, especially GWAS studies, use patients largely of non-Hispanic um, white men of European ancestry. And so we've kind of been focused on that. And so I think it does raise awareness that we 
continuing to do more research, especially in other racial ethnic groups. And a lot of people have kind of highlighted this in terms of finding out sort of other ideologies and other sort of genetic risk factors that might be related to that. So I've been guilty of kind of non-European, non-Hispanic white male with European ancestry. Oh, this probably is IPF, but I think with further research, hopefully you can have sort of a more broad outlook in terms of the growth control and taking that into account. So sorry, the long story short, I'm still leaning towards IPF in this case. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, John, for your comments on that. And, you know, not not putting too much weight on the ANA at, at this time. And Sonia, it does seem, you know, aside from the ANA, that our lab work is unrevealing thus far. And one question I know that many listening today and one that I had when I first started fellowship was, when should we pursue a bronchoscopy with the BAL? One for, you know, diagnostic purposes, or two, do you ever recommend doing a bronch with the BAL to rule out infection prior to immunosuppression? Yeah, no, I think this is a really important question. And, you know, BAL had not appeared in the uh, diagnostic pathway uh, in the last, in the previous guidelines for uh, diagnosis of IPF, but it actually has an important role primarily in two ways. One is that if you have a patient where you have a high level of suspicion of um, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, a, an elevated lymphocyte count above 40% is, is considered a very highly diagnostic finding. You can also have patients who present who have sort of atypical patterns, um, sometimes referred to as like the reverse battling sign that is an eosinophilic pneumonia. And again, that's practically diagnostic if you get a, an elevated eosinophil count on your BAL differential. Now, and I guess I should just back up and say, you know, part of it is what do you send if you do a BAL? And so, you know, I, we send a cell count and also culture data. And, you know, if there's a question of infection, we'll send a much more extensive, you know, evaluation. So maybe viral markers as well as uh, bacterial and mycobacterial markers. And so I think that it, the decision to do a BAL really starts with what do you think is wrong with the patient? What is, what is your, your level of suspicion for a particular diagnosis. So for instance, let's say you have a patient who has doesn't have really an obvious exposure, but they look like they have air trapping on their expiratory imaging. Uh, when you do that, that would be a patient I would say definitely let's take that patient and do a BAL because if they have a high lymphocyte count, I'm going to have a much higher level of confidence that this is hypersensitivity pneumonitis. For a patient where you're fairly confident that the patient has IPF, appropriate age, demographics, no alternative explanations, you might elect not to do a BAL. The BAL is really one of those things that you do when there's diagnostic uncertainty. So the patients where imaging might not be um, a definite um, UIP pattern or, or where there's a little bit of like, maybe there's more ground glass than you think you should see with, with an IPF patient. And that's the patient where I would do a BAL. And again, I think that it is valuable, um, as you've pointed out, um, Monty, that you do the, the, the um, BAL if you're going to immunosuppress a patient where you have concerns about infection. And you know, some of our patients with autoimmune interstitial lung disease present with fevers as part of their presenting diathesis. And so in that context, you want to be very sure that you're not dealing with somebody who's actually also infected. And so in that context, I would definitely do a BAL to look for an infectious etiology. 
as I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going to give this person, you know, gangbuster immunosuppression for their lung disease, let me make sure I'm not going to do anything terrible to an infection. So I do think that there are places, but I think that it's like a lot of things, you know, there are general guidelines, but at the end of the day, you have to always tailor your care to the individual patient. And so I think that, you know, this is why they're called guidelines, not rules. You know, we can kind of tell you approximately how to do it, but the bottom line is you have to examine the patient and gather all the data. And I think that that's actually where a multidisciplinary diagnostic panel is very helpful. And, uh, you know, I might just invite John Ishweta to comment on how they use this. But one of the big changes was that in the guidelines with the last round is that using an ILD MDD, as it's called, has become now a step before you do di further diagnostics, after you do a CT scan, but before you do like a BAL or a biopsy. And part of it is that it's just this question. It's like, is it going to be more beneficial or have more risk um, for this individual patient? And that's where having kind of the group input in an ILD MDD is very helpful. And again, this is a group that meets at some interval reviews patients who have interstitial lung disease typically composed of a few pulmonologists and an expert radiologist, maybe a pathologist, maybe a rheumatologist. Every, everybody's ILD MDD is different, um, but having that input is often extremely valuable. So I just throw it over to John and Shweta for their thoughts about that. Yeah, we were going to ask you guys about surgical lung biopsy and lymph node biopsy, but I think it sounds like all these principles apply. So yeah, please, anything you have to add would be fantastic. Yeah, I think the point that Sonia just made is probably one of the most valuable. Uh, I have a hard and fast rule. If you think you're about to biopsy someone, then you really need to present them in ILDMDD before you go ahead with that. And to piggyback off another point that she made, uh, sometimes there's guidelines and there's rules, but there's also the patient sitting in front of you. There are some patients that even though it might be the right thing to do uh, is to biopsy them um, or bronch them, they are not interested and worried about procedures. And so employing a shared decision-making model while simultaneously using the guidelines can often help you make the best decision for that patient in front of you. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with what Dr. Danoff and Dr. Sue said. And, um, I feel like we're a little bit spoiled. So each of us are in institutions that have an MDD ILD panel. And so feel so lucky, right, that you can present a case with all these experts. And so I think, you know, this podcast is also directed to maybe people who are not going to be an academic patient. Maybe they'll be in community practice. And that's really important. So I think, again, if you sort of suspect ILD and you have a lot of questions about a diagnostic workup or treatment work uh, decision, trying to advocate for your patient maybe to be referred to an MDD um, ILD center it may be important and kind of help guide the decisions. And so there's a paper from the White Journal Annals of ATS, I think from Canada, that showed that patients with suspected ILD who were referred to an MDD ILD center, um, a significant portion of those patients had one, their diagnosis changed, and two, the management also changed, I think it was over 50%. And most importantly, the providers that made the referrals were very satisfied with the input that the MDD-LD team um, gave and kind of was reassuring and felt like they had a bit more confidence in how to help take care of these patients. And so, like I'll say again, we're pretty spoiled that we have access to this. And so I think it's um, for people who maybe don't have access when to maybe refer these patients. Um, 
and then kind of getting back about when to consider surgical lung biopsy. And so there's a recent review, again, from Annals of APS that was published last year. I think Dr. Danoff was actually a co-author, and this was in partnership with the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. And this is a document that kind of reviewed what the approach is to consider a surgical lung biopsy a patient who has ILD. And I think this is one of the most useful documents I've come across and I've actually shared with my trainees and other faculty. And I just think they articulate it so well. And it's basically three questions you want to ask yourself with, uh, with the patient in mind. One, what is the leading clinical diagnosis and how confident are you? And two, let's say the clinical diagnosis, you're not that confident, you're not sure, how likely is a surgical lung biopsy going to alter the management? How is it going to really change your treatment decisions? And so if you can't reach a clinical diagnosis, you're not that confident, and you think that it may alter treatment, what is the acceptable risk for this patient to undergo a surgical lung biopsy? So these are kind of these sort of checkpoints you ask yourself of whether the surgical lung biopsy ultimately may benefit the patient. And um, you'll be surprised if you ask yourself this question, how often you don't pursue a lung biopsy actually, and you save a procedure that has some risk for these patients. And so I would say if you have a convincing history, a constellation of risk factors, CT characteristics, plus or minus laboratory data, it may point to a clinical diagnosis. And I think the recent guidelines related to IPS and hypersensitivity pneumonitis sort of reflect this. Um, and so I think there is definitely a subgroup of patients you would consider it, but I would ask these questions to yourself and that may help guide whether you think you should pursue a lung biopsy in consultation with an MDD ILD. Great. And I think before we, we wrap up our case, um, I know that John and Sonia have both alluded to this throughout um, so far, mindful of evaluating for potentially genetic manifestations of um, short telomere. And I was wondering if either Sonia or John, if you could comment on that again, for those that may not be familiar with that, what symptoms or clinical signs should we be looking for and what type of testing would you send? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think that this is something that's really been a game changer in the ILD world. Um, you know, when we talk about idiopathic, we sometimes think that it means that we don't know what causes it, but it actually means that it occurs in and of itself. And short telomere biology has really helped us understand why idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis occurs and perhaps actually more specifically why a subset of familial pulmonary fibrosis occurs. And these are families that either have um, hereditary changes that lead to short telomere length or and or abnormal telomere extension um, machinery, so the telomerase complex. The telomerase complex is an extremely complicated and large uh, multi-unit uh, machine that extends telomere length over the course of your lifetime. And much like height and weight and other things like that, there's sort of a normative standards for you know, you can be in the 90th percentile or the 50th percentile or the 10th percentile for your telomere length. And so there are families where telomere length is short. That is that they tend to fall below the 10th percentile and sometimes below the first percentile. There's now increasing evidence that those families are at increased risk of developing a syndrome called short telomere syndrome, which includes pulmonary fibrosis or other fibrotic lung diseases as well as what John alluded to, which is um, the um, like myelodysplastic syndrome or aplastic anemia or thrombocytopenia, 
as well as cirrhotic, uh, non-alcoholic cirrhotic liver disease. So it's a systemic disorder. The most severe form of it is um, uh, often referred to, there's, there's a syndrome called dyskeratosis congenita, which is in families where there's very, very early onset where you know, kids maybe in their, their early teens will develop um, loss of nails and graying of the hair and will develop anemia and actually will, you know, die as a result of, of progressive um, uh, loss of typically marrow function, but they also can develop fibrotic lung disease. And so, you know, this work was really nicely described by Mary Manios and Christine Garcia uh, in two separate cohorts. Um, and now what we appreciate is that short telomere syndrome is probably a premature aging phenotype. And we see the risk related to short telomere syndrome, not only in patients who have what we would consider idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but it also seems to have an impact in patients who have RA-associated interstitial lung disease and hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And as John nicely alluded to, it's, it's a multi-system disorder because short telomeres affect all of your organ systems. And so I, I'm going to turn it over to John because he, uh, you know, he has a lot of expertise in this area as well. So, uh, yeah, so I, I would say definitely if you suspect a very strong familial component, especially the short telomere syndrome, again, it may have implications not just for the patient, but for the family. And that's when you kind of may be involved in other counseling. You can do identify let's say a rare mutation related to telomerase function and things like that. I would say that it's unclear to me how much of, let's say, telomere length, which is sort of a surrogate marker, a sort of telomere dysfunction, how much that has been adopted for clinical practice across medical centers. And I think uh, hopefully we get ongoing research um, that tells us how much of this has been adopted, sort of checking telomere length, especially people with, let's say, sporadic interstitial lung disease where we don't find a strong familial component. I think the future area of research and how to incorporate telomere length is whether, again, it may affect treatment decisions. And so there is some research that shows that potentially some people with shorter telomere length, they have a differential response potentially to immunosuppression. We think that it may affect uh, outcomes related to lung transplantation in patients with pulmonary fibrosis who have shorter telomere length, uh, especially in terms of immunosuppression after you get lung transplanted. So uh, there's a lot of implications. A lot of these studies have been retrospective and observational, so I'm excited to see kind of what future research shows us, and hopefully we'll provide more clear guidance of how to incorporate at least the telomere length into the clinical uh, management uh, of these patients, especially with ILD that may not have a strong familial component. Fantastic. Well, this was awesome. This was a great hour, uh, hour and change. I feel like I learned a lot. Um, to wrap up our case, we had this 66-year-old man. He had progressive dyspnea on exertion and imaging findings consistent with the UIP pattern. He had other known causes of ILD excluded on an evaluation, both on history, physical exam, and labs. And at multidisciplinary conference, he was determined to have a diagnosis of IPF and a biopsy was uh, determined to not be necessary. We'll be discussing other causes of ILD and treatments for uh, IPF and other causes of ILD in other episodes. But for now, I just wanted to thank our guests and also see if they all want to give us one key takeaway point that our listeners should remember from our episode today. So my key takeaway point would be interstitial lung disease is a symptom. It's not a diagnosis. And the goal is to actually determine why the patient has ILD. 
for me, I would say that if you see traction bronchiectasis and or honeycombing on CT, again, these are sort of the cardinal features. It should raise red flags. And to use an analogy, this patient might be like a runaway train. And so it really should create a sense of urgency and prompt the provider to do something about it. And that sounds like that will be the topic of the potentially next ILD-related podcast from you guys. And I guess for me, it would be ultra simple, which is when in doubt, go back and redo your history and exam just in case you missed something. All great points. This is fantastic. And I think in our last couple minutes, we just want to say, you know, this is a sort of our first collaboration with the American Thoracic Society Clinical Problems Assembly. Uh, Dr. Danoff is the, the head of that assembly, and then you guys are all members of it. We're very, very excited about this collaboration. And so we wanted to thank you for joining and just ask a few follow-up questions about the assembly so we can tell our listeners about it. Yes, I um, would love to at this time, Sonia. I know as a current assembly chair for the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly, can you discuss some opportunities for trainees um, who may be listening today, as well as junior faculty, and how they can be involved? Absolutely. I think that the ATS is obviously a really key part of the learning experience um, and networking opportunities for folks who are in uh, various areas in um, thoracic medicine, whether you're in pulmonary critical care or sleep medicine. And, and whether you're an adult or a pediatric uh, provider. And so I really encourage people to be engaged with the ATS. It can seem a little bit overwhelming um, as a trainee or a junior faculty member. And so the assemblies are really a way of people finding a foothold that's maybe a little bit smaller way to get to know people. The assemblies are divided based on topics. So clinical problems focuses very broadly on issues related to the care of patients um, in pulmonary as opposed to the critical care assembly, which focuses on critical care issues. And really, uh, the goal is not only to address things related to uh, patient care, but uh, research, education, um, advocacy in that, in that arena. And then if you're interested in that general area, you can become involved at a variety of levels. Certainly come to the, um, the assembly meetings that we have uh, at ATS. But if you wanna get even more involved, there are many different um, committees that you can join. So there's an early career working group, which is a great opportunity for trainees and junior faculty to really kind of get more contact and more guidance regarding um, particularly moving through the academic uh, ladder in, in, in pulmonary. The other thing is that there's a mentorship uh, program that the Early Career Working Group has in place. And so if you're a trainee and you want, or a junior faculty, and you want to have a more senior person to get to know you from outside your institution, that's a great thing to do. Finally, there's an apprenticeship program, which means that in each of the assemblies, we have like an executive committee that sort of oversees the activities of the, of the assembly. But we have junior um, folks come in and essentially kind of see what the workings of the assembly executive committee are. And that can be a really great way to think about what matters to you within the assembly and, and how you could get more involved. Maybe you're interested in how the ATS program is put together and you want to be involved with the program committee. Maybe you're interested in women's committee and you want to be involved with that. Maybe you're interested in planning, which is sort of how are we going to move our assembly forward? 
So there are many, many opportunities for, um, for junior folks, for trainees and junior folks to be involved. We really encourage you to get involved with an assembly, whether it's clinical problem or another assembly, uh, because it's just a great way to have a smaller world to get to know the ATS with. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sonia, for sure. And I definitely encourage all those listening today, definitely sign up for the uh, mentoring program. And, you know, one day you could have Sonia or John be a mentor. We really thank you all today for your time. This has been amazing last hour. And I know that I'll be listening to this episode um, on repeat many times to get all the pearls that you taught us today. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music was original music made by Eric Rogers. 